0: All right, good morning, y'all. If you have your Bibles open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter four, we're going to close out this last bit of chapter four before we move on next week. At the end of the passage that we're going to read this morning, there's an important question that's asked by the disciples, which is, Who then is this? And that's a question that each one of us who are listening to this today, we have to have reconciled in our hearts. Who then is this? Who is Jesus to you? Which Jesus are you believing? Is it the Jesus of our imagination, the Jesus of our desires, or the Jesus as he is presented in Scripture? We recognize that what Jesus has said and has done up to this point in the Gospel of Mark is jarring. It was unexpected. Centuries, millennia later, people are still wrestling with who is this? And there have been explanations that have come to try and understand who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, challenges us to think truly about who Jesus is, and he makes the following argument. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And that's just based on what he said. C.S. Lewis did not include what Jesus did, which is what we're going to get into this morning in Mark 4, starting verse 35. There's an account. Jesus and the disciples are off on a boat. And Jesus does something that leaves his disciples flabbergasted. If we were from England, we would say they were gobsmacked. Before we get into the story, I need to set up the setting because the setting of the story matters. First, is there is a boat. Now, this is a rough depiction of what the boat would have looked like. Twenty-seven feet long, seven and a half feet wide, could have held about fifteen people. If you're doing your math, yes, Jesus and the disciples could have all fit in there. They're off on a boat, having spent the day teaching. Revealing more of himself, and Jesus says, it's time for us to get away. And so they get off into this boat, and they're going to move to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee matters in this as well. This is a large inland freshwater lake. It is roughly 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded on virtually every side by these mountains that you see um, in the picture here. By the way, that's not, the picture is like from like three weeks ago, not during Jesus' time, just to clarify what we're looking at there. The setting of this, being on the Sea of Galilee this is where these guys spent most of their time. Most of these gentlemen were fishermen. They were familiar with the Sea of Galilee. They knew what it was like to be out in a boat. They knew everything about these waters. They could have coasted across this lake in their sleep and have done just fine. But the Sea of Galilee has an interesting geographic feature. That because these mountains, the wind tends to whip through a pretty violent way. But usually only during the day. Which gets to the next interesting part of this story is that it was the time of day. And this is the Sea of Galilee at night. I'm still waiting on some of you to catch up. (laughs) And the reason why this matters is because what happens in this account was completely unexpected. Most of the fishermen, they would go out at night for two reasons. One, the fish were biting. But number two, they avoided the serious winds that would have happened ordinarily during the day. And so what happens is completely unexpected in the story. So let's get into the story. Mark chapter 4 verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Quick pause there. Mark is the writer of the gospel of Mark. Mark was not there himself for this episode, but his good buddy Peter was. And Peter has supplied Mark with details. And it's really interesting that in the other accounts of this story in the Gospels, we get kind of a short version. Mark, who's normally pretty abbreviated in his comments, decides to give us way more detail than the other Gospels do. And Mark is really trying to prove a point here. There were witnesses to this event. It wasn't just me, because I wasn't even there. And it wasn't just some legend, but instead there is eyewitness testimony to what I'm about to write to you. Which is why he includes this detail that there were other boats that were out in the water with them. Now... Mark doesn't do us any favor. He doesn't tell us what happens to the other boats. So we're left to imagine what exactly they had done, which is kind of a bummer. When we all get to heaven, we can ask Mark, hey, what happened to the other boats? Why didn't you write that in? That's an important detail. We would like to know where the other boats were. The boats being mentioned. And the fact that Jesus was just as he was. There was no preparation for Jesus. There was no like, hey, let me go get my stuff. It was no, we're going now. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, now there is one reading of this that would be inaccurate. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There's no way they said it like that. And I'm afraid to do it the way that they would have, lest I destroy like, all of our A.V. equipment and pierce your ears in the process. But just imagine that they are yelling this. Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. fishermen out on a lake that they're familiar with suddenly found themselves in the throes of the deepest panic and fear that they've ever known. It would take a lot for career fishermen on this lake to get nervous about something. They've seen it all. They've dealt with it all. They've survived it all. This is a story about greatness. Three times in this this account, Mark uses the word great. He first describes a great windstorm, a tempest. Then he describes a great calm, and that's a fun use of language. Think about it. When things are calm, have you ever described it as being a great calm? If you're parents of little ones, you pray for a great calm, but you may not necessarily describe it as a great calm. And then Mark uses the expression that there was a great fear. You put all these things together and who's at the center of the story and you have a great savior. This great windstorm popped up out of absolutely nowhere or did it. Jesus is showing his disciples exactly who he is. And we have the benefit 2,000 years later to read this and to be reminded of who Jesus really is. That in the midst of all these great things that he is the greatest and that he is the great Savior. A few things for us to observe just from this passage. Number one is that Jesus is both fully man and he is fully God. We know that Jesus rested. But this is the only time in any of the gospels that we're actually told that Jesus was taking a nap. And if you think I'm going to use that as my biblical defense for the ministry of nap taking, you are 100% correct. Who's with me? I can't control your life. I'm very limited. But I would strongly urge each one of you to take a Sunday afternoon nap. Develop the discipline of a Sunday afternoon nap. I will tell you, as I've told you before, I've got no shame in telling you, I will take a nap. And I will use this passage. Hey, if Jesus, the Son of God, felt the need to take a nap, it's okay for me to take a nap too. And I will do so gladly it's kind of hard to not count the minutes until I get to take a Sunday I'm just... But in Jesus taking a nap, he is revealing to us that he is fully human. He knew what it was like to be tired. And the story starts out on that day when evening came. They had spent the whole previous day teaching and just demonstrating who he is. He's exhausted by the end of the day. And he lays down to sleep. Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be thirsty. He is fully man. And he has to be fully man. Why does he have to be? If our sins are going to be paid for, Jesus had to be fully man man. At the same time, he is fully God. He's not playing the role of God. He's not putting on a God suit. He is fully God. And in Jesus, we have both humanity and divinity perfectly melding together. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That should be an enormous encouragement to every single one of us in this room, that we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who knows what it's like to be weak. Who knows what it's like to be tired, thirsty, hungry. Who knows what it's like to be ignored, neglected, maligned, who knows what it's like to be misunderstood, to be spoken of poorly. And yet the way that he did it, he did it without sin. But more than doing it without sin, he gladly took it on. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came fully man, lived a human life, fully without sin, but fully as a servant. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, we'll, we'll get to it, Mark 10, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was fully man, but he's also fully God, which he would have to be. Two reasons, number one, who else is going to stand in the middle of a storm on a lake and say, peace, be still, and it immediately obeys him? Again, as C.S. Lewis said, if anybody else were to try this, He would be a madman, a lunatic on the level with a poached egg. But Jesus is fully God. And he has the power to be able to talk to a storm and for the storm to obey him. Paul writes to the Colossians and says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus Christ, our Savior, was there at creation when everything was spoken into existence. So it's not a big deal for Jesus as God to look at that storm and speak to it and tell it to settle down. Jesus is fully man and he's fully God. Number two, followers of Jesus will still face storms. I hope that when you came to faith in Christ, that somebody was honest with you and told you that your life was not going to get better or easier because you became a follower of Jesus. I hope they were truthful enough with you to let you know that it might actually get a little bit more challenging if you choose to follow Jesus. Here are the disciples, Jesus' hand-picked dudes, and they're fearing for their lives. They're in a storm that they've never experienced before. Followers of Jesus will still face storms. If you look through the entire testimony of Scripture, none of our heroes of the faith ever had an easy life. All of them faced incredible, horrific challenges at some point or another. The low-hanging fruit on that one is Job. Look at Job's life. This was not somebody who had a life of ease and convenience. Everything was stripped from him, and yet he refused to blame God. Despite his wife saying to him, why don't you curse God and die? Job refused. And still said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Moses, as he's leading the people, is constantly being grumbled against, complained against. People say, you know what? This journey stinks. Take us back to Egypt. Egypt. Moses reacts in anger on several occasions. This was not an easy life for him. The mistreatment of Daniel while he's in Babylon. The mistreatment of Paul following his conversion. Followers of Jesus are still going to face storms. Whether they are the natural kind, like what the disciples were experiencing here, or the more emotional, mental kind. It's going to show up. But here's the good news. Followers of Jesus will still face storms, but they will face those storms with Jesus. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't forsake us. Jesus said at the end of The Gospel of Matthew, behold, I am with you always. The use of that word always does not give Jesus even a single out to abandon his followers. He will be with us always. For how long? To the end of the age. Regardless of the storm that you're facing emotional, mental, financial, physical, spiritual, Your Savior is with you all the way. He has never left you, and he never will. Paul writes to the Romans, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers... Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. That's a pretty comprehensive list he's given to us. Any, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Followers of Jesus will still face storms, but we will not face them alone. Jesus is with us Every step of the way. And Jesus warned us that life was going to get hard. He gave us a clear picture. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Not you might. Not it's possible you could encounter some. No. You will have tribulation. But... Take heart. I have overcome the world. Followers of Jesus will still face storms. We won't do it alone. And in the end, we win. Some of you are facing incredible, mighty storms. Some just recently sprung up at you, perhaps over the weekend. Some you've been dealing with for years and for decades. And it's very tempting to think, is this storm ever going to end? Take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, he doesn't give us a timeline on it, but he does promise his presence, and he promises that we win. You're never, ever, ever alone. And the existence of the storms does not mean that somehow you have done something wrong. If we can correct some really bad theology. Oh, you know what? You know, I can tell you exactly why that happened. It's because you did this, this, and this, and you didn't do this, this, and this. Sorry, I spoke really Southern there because I've heard this. This was part of my childhood is hearing garbage theology like that. If you would just do bing, 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 then you wouldn't face those problems. Really? What did Job do? And yet still face suffering. That's why we have to be accurate. When we invite people into a relationship with Jesus, that it's not a life of ease and convenience. That suffering is kind of part of the deal. But we never suffer alone. We always suffer for a purpose. And in our suffering, we always end up winning because Jesus is with us. Number three, Jesus shows mercy and compassion. Can we go back to the disciples' reaction to the storm while Jesus is taking his biblically justified nap? They, are, they must have been, must have been screaming at him. And probably with a tone of accusation, On their lips. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you hear what they just did? Jesus, you don't care about what's going on with us. Look at you asleep, not paying a lick of attention. You don't care. There's not a one of us in this room that would ever claim to be the Messiah, right? Okay, I need to hear a whole lot of rights in here. (laughs) R.C. Sproul once said that the one person on the face of the planet who ever could have justifiably had a Messiah complex didn't. And so you and I both know that if we were interrupted in our nap, With somebody making an accusation against us that we don't care about them. I can already feel my blood pressure going up a little bit. Like, how dare you say something like, what what is wrong with you? Number one, I'm tired. Where do you get off talking to me like that? Jesus. Verse 39. Let's read 38 again. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Jesus would have had every right, justifiably so, to have dug into the disciples. But he responds with mercy and compassion. Now, I am not advocating you to begin practicing, if it's not already there, a yelling match with Jesus. However, you know that in your heart of hearts, you've gotten into that match with him before. And maybe you're far too savvy and sophisticated to have actually said it out loud. But deep within your heart, you were yelling at Jesus the way that these guys were. And perhaps you were just on the edge of accusing him of wrongdoing. Or if not that, you were definitely saying you're being indifferent to my need. Look at Jesus' response. It is so unlike what any one of us in this room would have done. He solved the situation and then gently spoke back to them. Jesus is filled with mercy and compassion. And I draw your attention to this because some of us have kind of an inauthentic relationship with Jesus. Where we think that somehow we're able to shield from him how we really feel. And when things smack us in the face and we're not responding all that well to it. We've somehow crafted in our minds that we're able to keep him from actually seeing that. And Jesus seems to be actually kind of welcoming of it. Let's go back a couple of weeks when we were talking about the unpardonable sin. Jesus himself said, you can say what you want against the Son of Man and that will be forgiven. Just don't say it against the Holy Spirit. Jesus is inviting you into an authentic relationship with him. Where you can talk freely. Yes, I think respect needs to dominate. But you can be honest with him. Hey, I don't get this. My life's a disaster now. I can't see where you are at. It looks like you're doing precisely diddly squat in my life. Jesus is not threatened by your complaints. How do I know that? Jesus stood up in the middle of the storm. Hush, be still. Your complaints, your arguments, your lack of faith, if that's what it is, is not disruptive to Jesus but instead it creates an environment where he can then have an honest conversation with you. The heart of the father is this, that he shows compassion to his children. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Our Savior longs and loves to show compassion Jesus knows that you don't get it. Jesus knows his disciples don't get it. They spend three years walking with him day in, day out. Everywhere he goes, they go. Even at the end, they're still not getting it. He's at the cross where are the disciples. Poof, they've disappeared. Jesus is not asking you to have this down Perfectly. He's asking you to have an honest relationship with him. Your complaints, your grumbles, your concerns, your fears, your anxieties. This is actually where we can learn something from the disciples. In the midst of their fear and their panic, they did the one right thing. And they looked right to the one who could do something about it. So in a way, we can kind of commend their behavior. It wasn't like they're saying, okay, well, hey, you know, Jesus is asleep. Let's see if we can get ourselves out of this and he'll be really impressed with what we've done. Get out the buckets. Let's start bailing this thing out. No, they look immediately the ones that you're the only one that can fix this. It looks like you don't care, but you can fix this. Some of us in this room really need to start doing a better job of saying, my life is falling apart all around me. Jesus, you're the only one that can fix this. And when we do, we open up a channel of conversation between us and a compassionate, merciful Savior. Who wants to speak words of gentleness and comfort and peace to us. What I'm about to read, I know I've read like a hundred times before. I don't care. I want you to get this. Because there's a Savior that's crazy about us. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. When I asked earlier which version of Jesus are we believing? Some of us have this construct of Jesus in our minds that he's ready to squash us at the first instance of a mistake. That's not the heart of Jesus. It is gentle and lowly. Will he speak firmly to you sometimes? Yes, absolutely. But does he do it from a place of condemnation? No. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are an adopted son or daughter of the king, which makes you spiritually a brother to our savior, Jesus Christ. And everything he does is for your good and for his glory. And so he responds to you Gently, Even as you're screaming against him, his response is that of gentleness and lowliness and mercy and compassion. Whatever your storm is, however recent it's popped up, whether this weekend or a decade or longer ago, share it with the Savior and get his response. His response is, Mercy, compassion, gentleness, lowliness, peace, comfort. This is who he is. Who then is this? He is merciful, compassionate, gentle, peaceful. And he longs to give all these things to us. Now he will allow us to ignore it. But he stands ready to welcome us when we're ready to come. If you've been running from God, if you've been hiding from him, if you've decided to take up a battle against him by saying, I'm mad at you and then running away from him, today, confess that and run to him. You have a Savior who deeply, endlessly, gladly, and joyfully serves and loves you. The storms are not necessarily His punishment against you. It's just the reality of living life in a broken, fallen world. You don't have to face your storms alone. You have a Savior who comes alongside you. And who promises to be with you until the very end. This morning we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And as we do, we're celebrating the fact that this is who this Jesus is. And that these elements represent exactly who Jesus is. That he came to serve. And that he sacrificed himself on our behalf. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to worship with us as we partake in these elements. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what we would ask is that you would allow these elements to slide by. And instead, consider the truth claims of who Jesus is. And perhaps today, put your faith in Christ. Acknowledge that you're a sinner and that there's nothing that you can do about your sin, but Jesus came and died on the cross, in your place, for your sin. So this morning we get to to do this and to remember the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, fully man and fully God, to live among us, to endure the indignity of being human. We thank you that because he's fully God, he defeated sin and death forever. And now we get to celebrate and remember what it took to make that happen. That your son willingly went to the cross in our place for our sins. To die a death that he didn't deserve, but we did. But he did it in our place. So that he could live a life through us that we can't live on our own. Father, as we come to this table We do so with combined respect and celebration. We know what it cost your son. It cost him his life. And we celebrate the fact that he did it for us. Proving once again that he is merciful, compassionate, gentle. And they came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, meet with us now during this time. Remind us of what it costs to secure our salvation. And I pray in these next few moments that you would continue to lead us to share your story with a lost and dying and hurting world. We ask these things in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.